In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 19 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Let's start the show by taking a look in that email vault. Hey! Steve from Sydney in Oz dropped me a line to say he's enjoying the podcast. Thanks for that, Steve. It's really nice to know that someone's listening. And DM Mike from the Save or Die podcast, a podcast about classic D&D, is also a secret classic traveller fan too, it seems, and has an interesting thought on the humongous size of traveller computers, which I discussed back in episode 12. He suggests that it may not be the computer itself that takes up all that volume, but rather the shields required to protect the computer from radiation. He references a book published in 1984 called War Day, which points out that in a limited nuclear exchange, the EMPs would wipe out all the computers. Therefore, the computers would need to be protected by heavy and possibly bulky shielding. If there's any danger of radiation in space, of course, the same could apply there. Of course, people in Traveller are not always setting off nukes, but they might. And you can't afford to lose the computer just when you need it in the middle of a battle. Or perhaps there's some radiation caused by the jumping systems. It's not safe for computers, but perfectly safe for people. Or even solar radiation. There are any number of sources of potential damage to the computer, so the bulkiness could well be shielding. Thanks for those thoughts, DM Mike. Evan has sent me a few emails as well, and says the podcast is rekindling his love of Traveller. That's good to hear. I think a great many of us have gone through the long gap with Traveller. We played it when young, took five to... 30 years off, and then came back. It's pretty amazing that a a simple game like this can last this long in the heart. Evan has also dropped a whole bunch of awesome topics that I'm going to be working through into the upcoming schedules. I can't thank you enough for that, Evan. That's really added some inspiration for me. These include dealing with slow communications across an empire, PCs' reputations and how fast that spreads, and mystery as part of a scenario, and of course, teaching people skills. And with that bumper crop, we'll close the email fold. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is my galaxy, where I tell you about a planet in the Tesseso subsector. A map and planetary UPPs are available on the podcast's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Today's planet is Jadda Buas. This planetary system is not really a destination, not somewhere a tourist or a trader would aim to end their journey. It's a stopover for transitioning ships. It sits within one jump of the Zapmana system, a thriving world in the subsector, and only two jump from Razmabi and Ukaru. Thus, it is placed perfectly for ships with a lower jump capability. There is no planetary population in the system, and only the semi-resident crew of the fuel station to act as any kind of market to traders. Hence, it is not really a place you would want to visit. The E-Class starport is abandoned, consisting of nothing more than a flat area of bedrock and a fading beacon. 
All activity in the system is centred on the Jade Station, above the planet. The station itself never sleeps. Crews are constantly working to skim the two gas giants and keep the tanks full on the station to sell to passing traffic. Travellers are warned that this unrefined fuel is priced considerably above the standard rates, and captains with fuel scoops have to make the choice between time or money. The only notable features of the station are the Spacer's Bar on Level 2 called Nathan's Backstop that serves a wide variety of food, and the Daily Junk Market, where those travelling through can offload or pick up miscellaneous trinkets. Other than these two entertainment facilities, the station itself is purely functional. The station is owned and run by the Jarvis Corporation, who built the station some 80 years ago. All processing and policing in system is carried out by Jarvis and individuals are subject to their orders. There is no direct imperial representation in the system. There have been rumours that the Navy has stashed a number of refined fuel pods amongst the outer belt of asteroids. Jarvis have never offered any response other than no comment when asked about the existence of these pods. A report by an imperial survey of the asteroid belt made no mention of the fuel pods, but did contain a small item at the bottom of the report that simply said 12 other items were indicated. This mysterious comment has never been expanded and has helped prolong the rumour. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. Today we're travelling to the planet of Palanda that has recently had a revolution. The revolution started a few years ago and its core was a collection of scientists tired with the constant anti-science stance of the ruling global government. The government had a number of religious strictures that prohibited certain areas of research. Not only that, but a number of discoveries and developments that could have improved the situation of the common man were banned, with those involved in the work being unjustly imprisoned with the retro application of new laws. Thus, a revolution led by scientists started and eventually overthrew the religious government and replaced it with what many are now saying is an even worse situation. The new governance is strictly science-based, and this means that anything that causes harm is banned, anything that inhibits rationality is banned, anything that the rulers consider too dangerous is also banned. This of course means that many of the drinks that were previously enjoyed have been banned. And this is where the PCs come into the picture. The expensive and exclusive hotel Varius, close to the planet's main starport, has the sort of clientele that are able to pay for off-world goods, even prohibited goods. The manager of the hotel is willing to pay for crates of various drinks, and even has a contact off-world that can supply them. The manager is not only supplying clients of the hotel, but to help finance the purchase of these goods has linked himself to an underworld criminal that wants to shift a few hundred crates himself. The PCs could make a lot of money if they can get the goods into the hands of the manager and the criminal. Unfortunately, the manager of the hotel has become suspicious of some of his guests and believes that one or two of them may in fact be plants. When the PCs arrive on planet, he will ask for them to investigate the suspected plants. They will be able to discover that one of them is indeed a police plant. The other is innocent of being a plant, but is in fact an ex-doctor who recently murdered his wife and hid her inheritance. 
The police plant is actually here to watch the doctor, as they want to discover where all the money has gone. Of course, the policeman will report any illegal activity he comes across. The criminal, who is also waiting for the goods, will be rather put out by the delay in the delivery schedule caused by the investigation, and he will start pushing the PCs and the manager of the hotel to make the delivery. And this could easily escalate into a raid on the PC's ship. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is Rules Talk, where I take a look at some aspect of the classic traveller rules or canon. I thought for this segment I'd do a quick comparison between the basic Scout character generation process from the core rules and the expanded rules in the Scout book. I'm not doing this to say one is better than the other, but just to highlight the differences for you. First up, let's take a look at the skills available under the two systems. Under the basic core rules for Scouts, you have access to the following skills. Gun combat, vehicle, fax suit, mechanical, navigation, electronics, JOT, gunnery, medical, engineering, computer, pilot, plus some stat modifications. When you look at the equivalent inside the Scouts book, you have access to all of the skills that I've just mentioned, plus the following. Carousing, aircraft, recon, space, survival, zero-g combat, ship's boat, communications, survey, hunting, bribery, equestrian, forgery, streetwise, liaison, admin, broker, take a breath, <gasps> ship, tactics, gravitics, and leader. That list means that you get 50% more skills to choose from under the scout book. Term survival under the core rules is a 7+. Inside the scout book, it ranges from 3+, for training, to 6+, for war missions. This is a major disparity, making core scouts far less likely to survive any given term than even those going into a war zone under the scouts book rules. The core scout gets pilot skill to start with, but the expanded rules vary that to one of pilot, admin, computer or leader. Gaining skills under core is two for the first term, plus one per term, so that's three skills for two terms. Compare this to in the Scout book, where you get the chance of one skill per year of your four-year terms. Your first term is the training term, so you automatically get one skill per year for four skills. It's only for subsequent terms that you have to roll to see if you gain a skill. The majority of these rolls are around seven plus, so that's like a 58% chance of getting a skill for each of the four years within a term. So on average, you'll get a 2.2 skills per term or thereabouts. So for a two-term scout averaging, that would be about seven skills to the core characters three. Mustering out is per the basic rules, so no difference there except that any DMs from additional skills will apply to the process. And so that's the main differences between the core and the expanded rules for scouts. I find it interesting that the number of skill points you gain slightly more than doubles, and at the same time the number of skills you need to spread those across have also more than doubled. So I'm not offering an opinion here, but if you have anything to say about those differences, let me know. Send me an email. I live on an X-boat route, so I'll pick them up pretty quickly. Ah. Damn piece of junk! Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> 
No. No, don't you dare say it was me. Today's review is of an adventure, Marooned, one of the two adventures in the double adventure number four. Sadly, I can't find where I sourced this PDF from. I thought it was drive through RPG, but I can't see it there now, so it may have been removed. So this review is for the adventure in whatever format you find it. We have here 24 pages of adventure built around the PCs crossing vast tracks of the outback on the world of Pagalechi, a world in the Solomani Rim sector. The adventure starts with a brief overview, gives you a few traveller assumptions, and then a bunch of pre-generated characters that you don't actually have to use. Then comes the referee's details. The PCs are working as bodyguards for a man who is part of something bigger and is being pursued by enemies. They're all situated on a cruise ship when the enemy board that ship and the PCs and patron have to escape to the nearby planet and thus a pursuit measured in weeks commences as the party march for the starport and away back off of that planet. There are a number of new rules for tracking the movement of the party on a hex map and the tracking of the party by their pursuers. If caught, the PCs will be questioned and then killed unless they can escape their captors. It's a good setup for a story. The adventure kind of suggests starting with the pursuit, but playing from the hiring of the PCs, the trip on the starship, the escape from the starship, and the start of the pursuit are all valid story elements, and the adventure seems to want to skip over those. There is a little too much focus on the pursuit rules for modern tastes, I think. Then the adventure expands on procuring food and water and gives a few animal encounter tables as well. And that's about it. So this isn't a fully featured adventure as we'd think of it today. It is a solid framework and a good premise for an adventure with supporting rules. It's up to the referee to make the NPCs real and to give them character. It's up to the referee to come up with encounters including using the animal encounter charts given. So it is rather bland. And it's not even that the patron is given any real colour here. It's up to the referee to make everything more real. It's a shame it doesn't give us some interesting vignettes or filled out encounters, but I suspect that's because the original format was only 24 pages of the usual small book. All in all, it is an interesting read and can give you a good setup for a multi-session adventure but the ref is going to have to put a good lump of work into it to create meaningful encounters and NPCs for this very long trip. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about one of the alien creatures that can be found in and around the Imperium. In the Mercurial Seas of Theandus, there are many strange and unique animals living in the toxic lakes that form the planet's only liquid bodies. One in particular has come to the notice of the planet's human occupants. The locals somewhat dramatically called the creature the Death Net, because it has caused so many deaths over the years. The Death Net, as the name suggests, looks somewhat like a net. They vary in size from a few inches across to hundreds of yards. The appearance of a net is based on the basic building blocks of the creature, being a series of yellow rings, each just a few inches across. Each ring starts life as a hard-cased egg, no more than the eighth of an inch across. This then hatches into a single ring about an inch across. 
The newborn rings live and grow during a solitary life, living on the smaller animals that they drift into. Once they reach a few inches across, they start looking for other rings, and join to them, creating large frameworks that resemble the net that gave them the name. The early settlers of Theandus were mining the mercury for the small krill-like animals that teemed in the liquid, and these fishermen were subject to inexplicable disappearances. Vessels would disappear, or be found with the crew missing, and it was a few years before the death nets were found to be the culprits. What was happening was that the boat would run into or bump into a death net, and the net, which lived by engulfing its prey, would start slowly climbing up over the boat, capture the crew, and drag them beneath the surface to drown. Each ring is covered with barely visible sticky-ended feet that allow it to grab hold of a prey, or in this case a boat, and slowly walk itself over that prey until it is completely engulfed. Once engulfed, the rings contract until the prey is crushed and is subsequently consumed. As humans were alien to Theandus, the death nets did not realise that humans were toxic, and thus every time a human was taken, the death net would poison itself. Many of the larger death nets have been found with ragged large holes in them, and it's theorised that this may represent either the death of individual rings, damage from predator attacks, or evidence of poisoning by a meal of human at some time in the past. The mining vessels of the Andes are now fitted with special hulls that can be charged with static electricity which has been found very efficient at throwing off the death net attacks. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? This is On The Nets, where I tell you about some of the goodies that I found on the interwebby tubes. Today I want to tell you about an awesome audiobook I listened to a while back. It's called Bones Burnt Black, and was written by Stephen Cobb. Here's the cover blurb. A serial killer, brilliant, methodical and suicidal, sabotages a large commercial spacecraft's engines to set it on an eight-day trajectory to burn up in the sun, and then remains on board the ship to murder and torment its passengers and crew. With no other ships near enough to reach them, rescue is impossible, and the few survivors fight their unknown enemy while trying to invent a way to survive the growing heat of the sun. When I read that, I was straight away thinking of how to include that idea into a game of Traveller. There are some good ideas for your games in here. As a bonus, it's a very good audiobook, near professional audio production, a bombastic and gripping story, and characters you can relate to, and all set in space. You couldn't want for more. This audiobook is free to listen to and to download, and you can get it from podiobooks.com. That's P-O-D-I-O-Books.com. And as I said, it's free. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? The spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? There are thousands of channels. This is the People of Interest segment, 
where I tell you about one of the people who have gained some notoriety in and around the Imperium. Race Finunglan is a name that has had a conflicted public opinion in its past, but is now thought of as a heroic rogue. Race was and is the leader of a mercenary company called the Phalanx Four. It was a simple guns-for-hire outfit with about 200 men available. Mercenary units do not have a good reputation and generally they are disliked if not actually hated. They are usually the tools of the despot and the oppressor. There are many stories of mercenaries running wild and pillaging and so the general attitude towards them is negative. When Channel W56-IP News investigated past missions of the Phalanx 4 when Race and his company came to prominence, they found a fairly average mercenary history. These included urban clearances, commercial assaults, and even some licensed piracy. One particular dark spot in the history was the kidnap and murder of the Romanivs family, the exiled rulers of a small nation-state on the Imperial Fringe. Yet, despite these low points becoming known and brandished by some commercial news stations, the incident that earned Race and his company the renown they now have outshined the company's unpleasant history. The planet Arctus was under the rule of a despot, Caesarius IV, and he had come to power via a bloody revolution. The Phalanx Four were hired by Caesarius to keep the population in check in one of the major cities. This they did for six months. Race, realising that his team would be living amongst the population for some time, set a precedent early on of only using non-lethal force on the citizens. This was despite Caesarius even authorising extensive executions should it prove necessary. Other mercenary units on the planet were by all accounts running amok and abusing the people they were supposed to keep in line. This was no different, of course, to Caesarius's own forces. As it turned out, Race's policy not only kept the populace quiet, but it also formed some bonds of friendship between the company and the people of the city. However, the peaceful situation was not to last. Caesarius became concerned when he got no reports of executions from the city, and demanded that a proportion of the population be executed on pretenses, just to make sure they knew who was in charge. Race could not bring himself to execute people he had become friends with, and his men felt the same. They refused these orders. Caesarius invoked a contract clause and reclaimed all his funding that he had sent to the Phalanx Four, and then he sent over his own forces to throw out the company and to execute the required number of the populace. As the company was withdrawing, the executions began, and soon shots were exchanged between Caesarius's forces and the Phalanx Four, who were outraged. This culminated in race reoccupying the city and throwing out Caesarius's troops. A state of siege ensued. News got off planet about the heroic mercenaries protecting the populace against a despotic leader. Caesarius sent other mercenary units to fight the Phalanx Four, but only one of them agreed to the terms. The others were part of the same union and swore not to fight fellow members. The mercenary-on-mercenary fight was brief and half-hearted. Raced was left in control of the city. The siege continued for two months, and each time an attack was thrown back, another city would rise in rebellion against Caesarius. Thus it was the defiance of race Finunglan and the Phalanx Four freed this planet from the rule of Caesarius. Arctus, as a planet, 
gifted the company with a huge financial bonus and granted race an estate and honorifics. Thus the company sprang to fame and was able to pick and choose the missions it wanted to take on in future. It grew to army size and popularity grew as race chose to support rebellions and the underdogs in all future battles. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game. I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you that I recently released a non-traveller micro-RPG called Mecha Mice. Mice on the island of Bay have invented mecha suits that allow them to fend off the thousand enemies and to defend the community on the island. Danger is ever-present and the PCs play as members of the Mecha Corps. Yes, mice in mecha suits. Find out more at mechamice.blogspot.co.uk Once again, and as usual, if you have thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items or stories to send in, please send them to behindtheclaw at outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>